everybody, it's Microphones Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Salutations. Yeah. Now we were supposed to do uh, Almanac of Dust, Barrow Rose Smith, but that got preempted by some stuff. It's all my fault. I mean, really, just whenever something happens, just it's Steve's fault. Not always your fault. Really? No, not really. Anyway, so real quick, because we didn't have time uh, for preparation before recording this week, uh, we're going to talk about Into the Badlands, an AMC series uh, starring Daniel Wu uh, that Steve recently discovered. Yeah, <laughs> because I got a Netflix notification saying that I might enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I had uh, after season one, I had done a review of it on the blog. Uh, a couple years back this is one of those series that uh it's it's ongoing but there there are long hiatuses in production and there's a lot of production going on in this in this show it's probably you know unlike walking dead or a lot of other shows uh this one actually has a lot of production stuff that they have to do plus right. it's the only american show that uses heavy Hong Kong style wire work. Yeah, and there's there's a shit ton of it. Mm-hmm. And I I noticed that between season one and season two, they actually increased the number of the amount of wire work going on. Yeah, well, there's like a at least at least one huge wire work fight per episode. Mm-hmm. At least one. Sometimes you get more than one. Sometimes you just get like slugfests. It's it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Right. Now, to bring everybody up to speed on what Into the Badlands is, the best way to describe it is, is, is a genre-bending Western wuja television series. Yeah, it's got a little bit of everything in it. Uh, the production design is, is very interesting. It's kind of a cross between uh, medieval Chinese culture and steampunk and aesthetic. Yeah, definitely heavy steampunk. See, I find it the other way. I find that it's more Chinese than it is steampunk. Uh, just going by the clothing, uh, the styles of weapons used, and, and of course, how everybody fights. Yeah, well, that definitely I'll agree with you with the, with the weapons and the fighting. The clothing, maybe, but it's definitely, to me, it looks more like 1890s frontier chic and very chic kinda kinda but for example uh to speak of certain characters uh quinn his clothing is although it the silhouette kind of evokes that 1890s uh frock coat kind of thing when you look at the textures and the patterns it also looks like chinese armor yeah so it it's definitely a really really well done amalgamation mm-hmm yeah, styles and and it is evocative both. Um, the, the basic premise is you have um, post-apocalyptic world. Can you even call it post-apocalyptic at this point? Because it's not like um, the zombies took over last week or the bombs fell, um, you know, on Tuesday, and we're all trying to survive. This is five hundred years, right after uh, whatever after it was, whatever happened. Right, it's so long and it's so far in the future that the people who live there don't even know what happened anymore. Right, and and the, the setting is very lived in. Mm -hmm. um, you, you don't have 
one of the problems I have with the whole post-apocalyptic genre is you don't get very lived-in settings. Even with stuff like Walking Dead, which is supposed to be recent, mm-hmm. it doesn't have that um, verisimilitude of, of people actually living there. That, right. That this does. And um, it might just be because of the way they set it up. So they have, like I said, it's 500 years in the future, and it's this one chunk of land. You don't really get a sense of anything beyond this, the, the bad land. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the surrounding area. It's, what, it's in uh, Oklahoma? Most um, Oklahoma. Actually, I went to AMC's website and looked at a map. It is central and northern Louisiana. Looks like all the way up the Mississippi River to Missouri, into Oklahoma, and down like East Texas. And there's a wall to the south that I haven't been able to figure out exactly where that wall is. Right. <clears throat> and because uh, every post-apocalyptic setting has to have a giant wall somewhere. Well, I mean... Or even fantasy settings. Realistically, there may be a giant wall in that area. That's true. Um, so you you have this area called the Badlands, and it is controlled in this semi-feudal manner by um, warlords, for more or less of a better term, uh, called barons. Yes. And, and each of the barons controls a different aspect of the economy. So um, mm-hmm. the, the, the barony that you were first introduced to, their main export is poppy. Uh, yep, they're, and they're, opium. Their rivals uh, control the oil. Um, you yep. have you have different different baronies have different. Um, I guess you would say special exports because they, I'm assuming they all grow their own food and they and they are all yeah, it, able to sustain themselves. Um, but this is like the, the the stuff that that puts them over the edge. Right, and, but I think I think each each little barony sustains itself through trade with the other barony. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, most definitely. Um, they're they're interconnected. They have an they have alliances. They have some sort of charter. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this this interconnected trade of these um, products that none of which seem to be completely essential. Um, I mean, I guess you can argue that oil is essential, but yeah. um, for most people, they can get along without it. Right. Um, brings- and those people do seem to get along without it. Like, for example, you know, they talk about how important the oil is, but you only you see very few vehicles being used. Right. Well, well, it's the oil, I guess, is being used in the refinement process of the opium. They had mentioned that early on. Right. But, but this inter inter barony trade fuels. A civilization, mm-hmm. um, and you know, if, if the lore of the show, what what you've um, only heard through like watching the show, is correct, um, that's a high premium. There's not a lot of civilization going around outside of that wall, right? Well, I mean, we get to see outside of that wall in well, the season. So you get to and see it's pretty typical post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah, yeah, you get you get your your slavers, your junk dealers, scrappers, yeah. and that sort of thing, making a living off the ruins of the prior society. Right, and it seems that 
the prior society was our current age. Right. And and that's just, you know, the assumption you have going into it. So it, it's a it's a really cool setup. I mm. really like the way they, they built that up. The, the world building is fantastic. The world the world building is fantastic. The characterizations are great. You have it's because it's a television series, you have a a fairly large roster of characters. Yeah, but each one of them is unique and you you know, it's not one of those things where um this character, you know, looks like every other character. The 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 main characters always stand out. And then you have uh, generic henchmen, and they all wear the same uniform. Right. So each barony has their elite um, force uh, of um, clippers, is what they mm -hmm. call them. And they are, you know, the best of the best, and they, they, they're the guys with the swords. Right. And the, and the gals. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it bears mentioning that in this society, guns were completely outlawed. Yeah, for some reason, no guns, but um, you can have explosions. Uh, right. Uh, there are no guns, and everyone has gone back to this uh, swords, spears, fists, that sort of thing. And the better you are, the better trained you are, the more skilled you are, the higher you can actually become in society. Right. And everyone knows. Right. <laughs> and, right. Everyone knows how to fight. Exactly, and that—that's one of the great things. That's—that's that's one of the things that makes it very Chinese. Is like you run into, you walk into a bar, and you know, yeah, the bartender knows how to fight, and you know, but primarily you run across, you know, the confrontations are between, you know, uh, clippers of various factions rather than you know the the cook at the inn down the road right, is, is not usually a character. Yeah, and, and it, it, it is a story about the elites of this society. Um, one of the Clippers, the main characters, is um, one of the, the, the best of the best in the Clipper crop, and he finds a, um, he finds a boy who has powers. Mm -hmm. And that um, basically sets a ch the, the events in motion that power the story. Um, now, I read, and you're going to know a lot more about this than I do. I read online that um, Journey to the West mm -hmm. is a huge influence on this story. Um, and, and, you know, I'm cursory. I have cursory familiarity with the story. And it seems to me that it has about as much in common with Journey to the West as, um, oh, brother, where art thou does to the author. Right. I, uh, there, there, it's, there's, it's given lip service. Some of the characters are named the same, but, you know, thematically, and, um, and it, it really doesn't cut the mustard. So I, I, that's just my opinion, um, my impression. Obviously, I haven't, um, I'm not as familiar with that word as you. I was actually kind of hoping to hear what you have Right. Well, about that. Journey to the West, um, it, as you say, it's more of an influence than this is an adaptation. Uh, it takes certain tropes like MK. Right. Um, who is MK actually stands for Monkey King. Right. Even I got that. Right. Even though I read that that's wrong. That's incorrect. Uh, I got it off the official wiki. Oh, really? Because um, there's a lot of speculation that the Monkey King character is actually Wu. And... Mm. and uh, MK is pig. Oh, not pig. Uh, boar. 
No, or would be ne never mind. Right. One or the other. See. Um see see I was thinking that uh Daniel Wu's character was more the the priest, I suppose. Yeah, and, and a lot of this stuff might come into focus more over season three. I admit I haven't watched any of season three yet. Yes, it's ongoing. I've, I've as well only watched the, the seasons that are on Netflix. Right. Um, so once we start journeying to the city of Aslan, uh, which is in the West, uh, we might start seeing more how the puzzle pieces come together. But primarily, they've, they've kept it so every all the action stays more centered around the different baronies and just over the border into what's not in the badlands which is kind of an interesting thing as well is that the uncivilized areas are just kind of you know not mentioned by a name and the actual civilization is considered the badlands right well i mean and they are pretty bad i mean yeah. you're not but another interesting thing is the, the two barons that we follow around, uh, Quinn, who is essentially played by P.H. Lovecraft. Yeah, he is uh, He's the southern gentleman on the exterior, but he's an evil SOB. Right. Uh, and the widow, right. who you know, got her power through the nefarious deeds, but she fights for a more noble purpose. Kind of. Kind of. But she's just as ruthless as any, all the other barons. Um, both of them started their lives as cogs, which are the serf class, right? Uh, essentially slaves bound to these feudal systems, and they uh, went through the rose through the ranks. Quinn himself was a cog who became a cult, who became a clipper, and then he ended up becoming baron. Right. There, there's definitely a lot more upward mobility in this system than in any other. Um, fascist system <laughs> right that i've encountered in fiction um, right and i think the characters you see this in season two when they have the conclave of of all the other barons that the two or three barons who came up from the cog ranks really look at their station a lot differently than those who have inherited their position from uh through bloodline well right you actually see that in the dynamic between um um uh, Quinn and Ryder. Quinn and Ryder, yeah, thank you. Um, where Ryder's Quinn's son, he's kind of a he, he's poofter. And it, it, I mean, and like the English nobility, judge it out. He's he's a fop, a bit of a fop, yes. Um, he he has everyone can fight <laughs> in this world, but he uh, he's certainly not as adept as other. Kids. No, he's he's used to a life of relative luxury right um uh his mother his mother even kind of coddles him a little bit even as an adult yeah he's definitely sheltered uh, and mostly by his mother mm -hmm. uh, his father is all but disowned him because he is like i said he's a fop he's fairly incompetent when it comes to affairs of state now whose fault is that is that because um he hasn't been trained properly by his father is that because his nature is that he's foppish he inherited his title and there you go um is, is it because his mother has uh who is a ruthless person herself um protects him right well it's because we are prisoners to our nature some men are killers, some men are killed. <laughs> so 
I have to ask you this. You know, we've talked about the production design and whatnot. Who has been your favorite character so far? Uh, Nick Frost's character. <laughs> the the rogue. Yeah, Nick Frost. Nick Frost is in this, and he is fucking hilarious. He's great. Oh yeah, um, he, he is absolutely. Yeah, you know, if you want my help, just ask for it. And he's just following him around. He's like, if you want my help, just ask for it. <laughs> he yeah. So they have this faction. Uh, they are the special people monks. Yes, who are able. They are the monks that um, comprised of all these people who have the same powers as MK and they learn to control their powers and they live an aesthetic life so they don't um, end up killing people. Right. Well, the nature of these powers, they call them dark ones in, in the setting. And pretty much any time a character uh, is has their skin cut, they this power just takes over and they go into a murderous rage. Yeah, they're, they're super saiyan. Yeah, and they, 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 even if they have no training, they are unstoppable martial arts badasses. Yeah, they, they're Super Saiyan. So um, Nick, Nick Frost is a lapsed dark monk, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess, is for, the, for lack of a better thing to call him. And uh, it's funny because like throughout his whole, the first part of his arc, before you find this out, he's like a bumbling fool. You know, he's the one who's tripping over his own feet and everything. Then right. You find out, oh yeah, well, the bumbling fool can fight too. Yeah, he's not a, he's not a master of, well, they, they allude to it every once in a while because every, every now and again, he pulls off a pretty badass move out of nowhere. He does, but it's all, it looks like it, he's, uh, like in a complete accident. Yeah, he's Inspector Cluzo. Like, right. Yeah, that. And then you finally realize, well, he's just really good at covering up the fact that he's a lapsed dark monk. Right. And, and it, it, it's wonderful. He is great as this character, as kind of a foil to Sonny, who from episode one is this stern, humorless character. Sonny is Danny Wu, the main character. Right. Yeah, his name is Sonny in the show. Um, yeah, and he, he's just boom, 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 boom. And he's always the straight man, and then he meets up with this other character, and they have this great uh, opposite, odd couple type of uh, interaction. Yeah, it's it, you definitely have one of those things where um, Sonny thinks he's calling the shots, but he really isn't. Right, but that's that's kind of Sonny's character arc is that you know he thinks he's calling the shot, but he's just as much a victim of fate as everybody else yeah i mean he, he's basically he is an eternal henchman he's a, a henchman but he's always mm -hmm. a henchman. He's, right. he's always you know he, even when he gets what he wants he ends up um taking orders from somebody else right he's right never, never and, and maybe this is where the journey to the west part of it like kicks in mm -hmm. maybe it's more metaphorical where um, he he's never his own man. He's always he always has a master, and his master's interests are always not quite aligned with his. They go for a while, mm -hmm. but eventually, um, Sonny's best interests and whoever is working with him, quote unquote, um, their interests are are not the same. And e even with a relationship like Nick Frost, and and that's kind of 
how that ends is kind of a cliffhanger that I don't want to go into, but um, th that might have also been like some sort of um, character betrayal of Sonny as well. Right. Uh, Sonny as a character, in, in my mind, um, he, he never really gets what he wants because he's always in service to something else. Yeah, exactly. And whether, whether or not it's, you know, he, he tries to, he gets kicked out of the badlands, sold into slavery. He escapes, but he's not there to free himself. He's escaping so he can get back to his lover and their newborn child. Yeah. I think of any of the principal characters, um, he has the purest motives, mm -hmm. you know, um, like, like you said, he, his, his goal is to, to just make sure his, his lover and his, and his kid are okay. Right. And, and did you write by them? And, um, he keeps on getting thwarted. Right. He keeps on getting thwarted. Plus he has this, this inner moral compass. And as much as he doesn't, he wants to stay on mission and not get involved. He has this degree of compassion and that, that compassion always gets him into trouble. And, and, that, and this is actually why um, I wanted your expertise on Journey to the West, because I don't know if this is part of the theme of, mm. that, of that work. Which uh, is one of the reasons why I think um, Daniel Wu's character is, I believe, Friar Sand. Although I think Friar Sand, now that, you're, now that you reminded me of Nick Frost's character, I think Nick Frost is Friar Sand, uh, because he's kind of the... Um, corrupted monk. Um, I, I'd have to go through and start reading the second half of Journey to the West again. Journey to the West is a massive book. Yeah, it's a big book. Um, it is considered to be one of the foundational classics of Chinese literature. Uh, it's one of the world's oldest novels. And it, it is it is enormous in scope. Yeah, it's, it's a tall order to say that this series is influenced by that work. Mm -hmm. um, and and do it beyond lip service, right? Um, especially considering that it, it's um, there's a lot of Chinese in the production, yes, of, of this thing, the writing, mm -hmm. the the wire, um, but it is made for American audiences. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's on AMC, right? It is uh, on AMC. Uh, and, it is, and, and you, you have to, I guess. I don't want to cater, but yeah, you got to cater to people if you want people to watch it. Right. Um, well, well, case in point, that movie we watched um, that Bruce Lee had originally written. Oh, uh, Circle of Iron. Circle of Iron, which was, um, you say, it, it, it was a did a very good job of introducing um, Buddhist tenets to um, to people. But it was unwatchable because it really wasn't geared towards an, an audience target, that wasn't familiar yeah, with the target audience. Whereas this, you you know, anyone can relate to uh, to wire work because it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we're familiar with it. And anyone can relate to themes of um, redemption because, you know, that's that's the American narrative. Right. Um there's also, I think, a heavy influence of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, as you're you're talking about the relationship between these these barons, um, and you only focus on like two, three 
in each season really yeah. well yeah and how how the shifting power works and how each um each kingdom has kind of its own little core group of characters that you focus on right and then you have the the outliers uh the other thing that's really great about the production is how they keep to color themes so well yeah yeah every when when you're in um when you're in the widow's barony you know you're in the widow's barony that's right because everything is as shit yeah everything is tinged in blue uh when you're in when you're in uh quinn and later riders barony the armadillo I love how everybody has their own symbol too, the armadillo, the butterfly. You got that crimson. Yeah, everything's crimson. And even Sonny, after he is is forced out of the service and, and kicked out of the Badlands, when he is given clothes again, his clothes are more muted, but they're still that reddish color. They're more of a, a burgundy. That's kind of the same with um what's his name in the wheelchair? Yeah. Um, he, he he wears the same style of clothing, and yet it, he switches from red to blue. Right, and and it, his blue is definitely darker than right. than the blue of the butterflies, general, the general butterflies, and and their and the uh, uh, clippers right. for, for for the widow. Right, and I I enjoy how the widow she stands out because she's the widow. She always wears black. Yes. And and later on, her her regent, um, shoot, I forgot her name. Oh, um, uh, the, 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 yeah, son of a bitch. Yeah, get her. I, I was watching yesterday, and I forgot her. Um, but she becomes regent, and she switches to black, like the widow. And the widow is unique in that all of the other barons just have an army of clippers. Tilda. Tilda, thank you. Um, you know, Quinn has just an army, and he has he has Sunny, and then he has everybody below Sunny. Right. The widow has a special retinue of guards, and she has her own clippers as well. Right. She has a, I, I guess you just call them butterfly ninja. Uh, they're just called the butterflies. Yeah, but they're basically ninja. Hmm. Uh, they, they they move silently in the shadows and strike without warning with shuriken shaped mm -hmm. like butterflies. Yep. If if the widow wants cannon fodder, she sends her clippers, which I they stand out as well because they're all uh, waistcoats, slacks, and bowler hats, <laughs> and katanas, <laughs> and many folded swords. And so while everybody else kind of you know they you can start telling them apart a little bit. Uh, the higher ranks of the Clippers, but all of the Widow's uh, mainline Clippers all look like generic you know, uh, action movie bad guys. Uh, Alex DeLarge. Just coming at you over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. Him troops. Right. Now, it's actually one of the things that I, I had an issue with. I guess there's a couple of, of things I had issues with just in terms of um, plot. Okay. And not, not like plot holes, but um, um, I found A, I found it to be fairly predictable. They really overused the whole betrayal trope a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, anytime two people are talking more than like five minutes together, 
Uh, you figure that one's going to betray the other. Just it's inevitable. That's what's going to happen, and it, it's pretty fairly consistent, um, with one exception. Well, two exceptions, and that is the widow and Tilda, and Sunny and Vale. Yeah. Yes, but I, I just in in, I guess in terms of um, people interacting with Sunny and trying to get further his story or any of the principles really. Mm. All the principles just get dicked right. by, by each other. And the other thing is just the the way they set it up originally is uh, the Clippers are the best of the best. They're the elite. They're an elite fighting force. And yes, everyone knows martial arts and is really fucking good at it. And then you have a top tier um, above that. People like Sonny and Minerva, right. the widow, and Tilda. Um, and then at, at some point the Clippers kind of became cannon fodder and they ceased to become an elite fighting force and they just became body. Right. And, and I, I guess I kind of had a problem with the way they had set it up that, you know, when, when you first see the Clippers, it's, you know, through the wall and they're all lined up doing their exercises in tandem and it's striking, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh wow. It's like a Jackie Chan movie. Um, right. And, and, Eventually, they just become bumbling idiots for the for the elite to plow through, or you know the opposing army to plow through because the plot demands it. Well, you you also have to think about it this way: is that you know by and large the Clippers they they call them an elite fighting force, much like they call stormtroopers the elite of the Empire, but they're the only characters you actually ever see fighting. Right, but these guys are more believably elite in the beginning of the show than mm-hmm. towards the end of it. They definitely their skill level, um, vis-a-vis the main characters, right, drops off considerably towards the the end of the second season. Well, they definitely use uh, the trope of the law of conservation of ninjutsu, uh, where the more fighters are on the screen, the worse they are, and. The lat when there's only one fighter on the screen, they're superlative in skill. But also on the other side of that is that yeah, while the Clippers are kind of the elite fighting force, all of the named characters are those are kind of legendary figures. No, and and that's that's definitely true, except when they, except when they're not, except when you need you know four Clippers to capture um, Sunny. Right. So they, they definitely are are their skill level is dependent on the um, capriciousness of the plot, right? Right. And, and but as, as, as a general it's rule, not, it's not distracting. Um, right. It's just and and maybe something like this happens more often in television shows than um, not. Right. So I, I don't know if it's. It, I don't think it's uncommon for this trope to have right. like these super super badass fighters suddenly turn into storm well when you think about it though you listen think about it how the characters who defeats who um sunny really doesn't suffer a defeat until he fights the monks sent to reclaim mk right and they had to power up to beat him yes they, they certainly did. and it took three of them um i believe he all of the clippers of course all the regents uh, they have a habit of getting hash mark tattoos for every life they take. And Sonny, um, 
his record is 404. Yeah, he's killed 404 people. Right, and we only need one other Clipper that's considered better. Right. And he retired. Kind of. uh, we're not really sure about the, the fellow that's in the wheelchair. I can't remember what his name is because they rarely ever say it. Yeah, it's like a lot West. of times they just call him old man. It's like Wes. <laughs> right. Which I like that character. Yeah, he's pretty cool too. He's he's kind of the old grizzled soldier. And he is Waldo. 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 Waldo is a bad dude. Period. Waldo reminds me of a court in um in Stephen King's Gunslinger series. Right. Or or almost the um like Drax or yeah, no. yeah, I, I hear, yeah, he's definitely he's been there, he's done that, he's semi-retired and is able to pass his his wisdom to to the next generation, right? But he is more of a strategist than all the other Clippers, all yeah. you know, all the other characters, with the exception maybe of uh, Lydia, Quinn's wife, and possibly Quinn himself, right? Um, he he comes in, he defects sides, he goes to the widow, and he acts as an advisor and a strategist, and he's always the old grizzled warrior who has advice. Yep. No matter how good you are, you go to this guy, uh, and he has something he can offer you that yeah. you didn't know before. Yeah, nope, he's definitely been there and done it. Right. And we... I'd, I don't recall ever seeing how many tattoos. I know he's got them all around his fingers. Yeah, um, you know, in something like this, you can really just judge by what they show you. You can't mm-hmm. really count tattoos. Right. So you just kind of assume that uh, I'm, I'm Waldo not- must be a real badass if he ended up switching over to his fingers. Yeah, so the cool thing about the tattoos, and I wonder if you can do this with, um, I guess you can do the math. At 404, each tattoo ends up being, each kill ends up being grouped into um, a tattoo of eight marks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like a bunch of sword blades that, that um, crossed the eighth one. Right. Another sword. Blade. I'm sure if you paused it and counted, you probably could get them. So according to this, um, uh, Sonny should have 50 and a half of those tattoos. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of tattoo. Yes. And uh, the other guy, um, Moon. Oh, yeah. Moon. Um, should ha- have 249 and three quarters. Right. He of, even of says at one tattoo. point uh, his his count was 999. Yeah. And he was waiting for the one. All right. The, the equal, fighter of equal skill to be the final tattoo. Uh, and then he would be ready to die after a thousand kills, which of course is a lie, right? But even he says he was running out of skin, That's and he does he does have his shirt off at one point, and his tattoos do cover his arms and his chest as well. It's a lot of tattoo. Mm-hmm. In principle, if you've seen Black Panther, the hash marks are much like Killmonger scars. Yeah, or or you know Zaz from Batman. Mm-hmm. Or shit, fighter pilots from World War Two mm-hmm. with the kill marks. Yep. Or, or fucking defensive ends in college football. Right, with the stickers on their helmet. Yep. Uh, yeah. The 
that was, Moon was an interesting character as well. Uh, he comes on. Uh, everybody, you know, he comes off. You think he's a bad guy, then you think he's a good guy, and then you find out that just, he's not really. There are no good guys and bad guys. Start raving mad. <laughs> right. He's just all he wants is to die in honorable combat. And and how really do you maintain your sanity in this world? I mean, this world is pretty intense. Um, it is. I guess you can argue that that's what you get used to. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty intense world. I mean, from just from any position you're in, from being a cog, where you you know you're that's what you are. You're a cog, and your life is completely meaningless unless you can fight your way to the top. Right. Or you know, at the top when you're a baron and everyone's plotting against you. Right. You think that you can trust your wife, but there you go. You, you can't. Or well, that and and there are a lot of moral lessons to learn. Is never marry your husband's girl, your son's girlfriend. Yeah. Um, well, to be fair, he had a brain tumor, so he wasn't thinking clear. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the other interesting things about the show is you because Quinn has a brain tumor, and we discover this in like what the very first episode. Yeah, it's fairly early on. We watch him descend into madness. Yeah, he he goes off the off the wall. Yeah, he eventually starts. He after he kills Ryder, he's hallucinating his ghost possibly hallucinating his ghost because they've already established supernatural powers by then. So that really could have been the ghost of Ryder. Right. But you don't know if the, what the nature of the supernatural powers are. It's fairly open ended. It doesn't seem to be related to the same thing. The supernatural powers look like they're just like, they turn you super saiyan. Right. Or, well, you know, the master, uh, broke her arm, she pushed the bone back in, used glowy hand magic to... She did, and, and I think a Super Saiyan can do that. Um, then we have the Doctor Strange-style journeys to alternate worlds. Yeah, I don't know if those were in the minds of the participants or not. It's hard, hard to say. Right. It's very much tied to location, though. You have to be in the that room of mirrors that was yeah. recycled from uh, Enter the Dragon, which is, uh, for me... Which I suppose, in a lot of ways, that that room is, to to use an archaic uh, term, a psychomantium. Um, that you're supposed to be able to commune with the spirits. It's basically a cube. The inside is all mirrors. It's lit by a single candle, and you just get this infinite reflections of yourself. And that's supposed to allow spirits in. And MK goes into one of these to confront his inner demon. So there's a little bit of that. And that ties in with the with the steampunk aesthetic as well, since yeah. that's a Victorian device. Now, now speak the steampunk aesthetic. What about the connection between um, Aram and Bioshock? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so MK shows up with this medallion and has like the silhouette of a city in relief on it. And right. um, Sonny also has a... a um, Compass with the same design on it, and it looks like um, Rapture. Yep, it literally looks exactly like Rapture. Later on, um, he finds a copy of Wired Map from 500 years ago. Uh, it basically has the outline of Rapture on the front and says Bioshock on it, and probably an article about the game in there. Mm. 
that's that is that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, Azra is probably a fictitious city, and the. However, there's also the book that the widow has. There's the book that the widow has, and at the end of the well, nah, at the end of the series, you you are, or the end of the second season, I guess, um, led to believe that Azra is um, real. Mm-hmm. Or at least has some basis. Right. Well, you had the weird thing where you put the magnet in the or the compass in the back of the book. Yeah, and it, and it spins and it points west. Right. And then there's all the um, all the strange, almost Sanskrit type writing in the book itself. So it's almost like Azra is this civilization that arose some point in that 500 year span. Yeah, and maybe it's based on um, Rapture. Maybe they. It's quite possible. Came across a copy of Bioshock and thought it was a great game. Well, that's that's the unusual it, thing it, is that they're Randy in Paradise, right? But the the strange thing is is that the technology level has reverted back to, um, you know, late eighteen hundreds at best. Yeah, there are cars, few and far between. So yeah, some things have progressed better than others. They have, they have X-ray machines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have obviously have like semi-modern medical and transportation. Um, weapon technology has seems to have halted, and you know they had banned guns because guns would totally ruin this show. Right. It would if everybody's got a gun. You know, you don't have the elites. Right. Um, it it, kind of reminds me of how Naruto's technology works. It's they, they pick what they want Mm -hmm. or whatever serves the plot. I need, we need to know this guy has a brain tumor. So there's an x-ray machine, right? She has an x-ray machine. She's able to, she's able to, um, come up with a way to do chemotherapy. Kind of, kind of yet. She also has to do trepanning. Right. But she also makes prosthetic limbs that seem to function normally. Auto male. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in general, you know, with one or two like kind of nitpicky exceptions, mm-hmm. this is a really good series. Yeah. It's a really good series. I can't wait to get uh, deeper into season three. Yeah. I wish it would end so it could go back on that. Yeah. Or, so, or it just keeps going. No, I mean, just, you know, the. the yeah. Uh, yeah, so the seasons are, are strange. The first one is um, 10. Uh, the first season was seven episodes. Seven. The second one was 10 episodes. The second one was 10. The current one is, uh, I think, 16 have been ordered. Right. So it's definitely doing well enough that AMC, when they're re-upping the series, renewing the series, they're getting more of it. Right. And, 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 and it's possible that a lot of that is the, the wire work involved, the, the entire... Uh, second unit the stunt coordination crew uh, is flown in from Hong Kong and they do the um, the fight sequences in Chinese style they don't there's a certain type of choreography that the Chinese do in their action films that don't come into the way Americans do it yeah and you know they come in and they do it and um, one of the interesting things about the Chinese style of action choreography 
is that the actors are expected to do as much of their own stunt work as possible. Does this translate to that happen here? I mean, I know Danny Wu can hold his own. Right. Um, you have certain shows. No, I mean uh, here, this show. Oh, this show? Yeah, yeah. All of the uh, all of the principal actors ha- do their own fights. There, there are no stand-ins. That's pretty. Because cool. there's a lot of close-ups in those fight sequences as well. There definitely are. And that's one of the things that leads to the believability of the show. I mean, if if you have a big action set piece and suddenly the camera pulls way back, you know, it kind of takes you out of it. But when Quinn fights the widow, you know, you want to keep because that conflict, the fights that occur are integral to the plot and the overall story. Um, so they keep the cameras in close because there's a there's a kind of emotional context to the fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, violence is storytelling, I suppose you could call it, as opposed to just violence. Right. Because every every fight between all the characters, with the exception, well, even even when it's random thugs versus one of the other characters, you know, those all of those fights build up and they serve one to introduce you to kind of the personality of the character. Because everyone has a unique fighting style. Right. And also, you know, every fight that happens builds up and builds up and builds up through all the rest of the drama. So, you know, it's one of those things that you almost, while you say some things are predictable, the predictability always culminates in this exciting uh, matchup. Like all of the drama between, you know, Quinn and the Widow and their factions going at it and all the political intrigues. And it culminates to that fight in her house. And you see the widow and Quinn go at it for the first time. You know, it's like all, all that tension that built up is released in that moment. And then we happen, it happens again. And then, you know, how everybody is so tense when Quinn meets uh, Jacoby in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And they, the widow has engineered it so they would end up fighting each other. And they fight each other at the drop of a hat. Yeah, there's definitely... Lots. Tilda throws that pickaxe right into the meeting. And as soon as they see it's a pickaxe, boom, it's on. <laughs> because Jacoby runs the mining, and that's their one of their weapons of choice. Right. Which always, I, I find that interesting as well. Right, it's it's probably a good thing that they're the only faction that, that does that. Or else... Um, the. Um, so he'd be fighting with um, bongs, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think theirs is the fact that I believe they are one of the only factions that uses two swords. There are a couple of the widows' men who use two swords, right? But a lot of the widows' men later on are um, displaced from from uh, from that that faction, right? But she's also, you know, um, Sunny use, and, and most of the Clippers use either Chinese dows or sabers. Uh, Sunny prefers straight blades, single-edged straight blades, whereas everybody else carries sabers. Um, all of the Widow's mainline Clippers carry Katana, and her butterflies use dual-wheeled daggers and shuriken. Right. Um, the Widow uses a lot of different weapons she yeah, uses she, daggers but she's also fond wow. of twin twin Jian. she's she's definitely two weapon fighting well she also has um very special training right 
Um, Which was predictable. Okay. You know, you want to talk about predictability. As soon as that whole thing came up, I knew that it wasn't about, there was no mystery about it. It was just like, duh. Because there's only one person in the plot that, that fits that description. So that stuff like that, when they're trying to build this tension, who is it? Who is this mysterious thing? Yeah, it's pretty easy to figure out who it is. And, and yeah, and I, I, I'm a little disappointed because you have shows that, um, like, like The Flash, mm -hmm. that are really good at deception. Right. They're really good at, at, at throwing something out there and having you trying to guess who, what the fuck is going on and then... Like last season on Arrow, when they had Vigilante, and you know they kept throwing you red herrings as to the identity of Vigilante. Right, right. Or, or, um, or Prometheus. Salivar. Uh, Savitar. 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 They did uh, Zoom. Zoom. Zoom was great. That was fantastic, and and it kept you guessing until the big reveal. And this was like they they uh, Nick Frost talks about his uh, his backstory, and you're like, oh, that's that's uh, the widow, mm -hmm. and then it's not even like now, granted, you can't even granted, like pat yourself on the back with that one. It was just kind of like, well, just like granted, you know, the widow also admits in the first episode of season one that why she wants to quote unquote help MK yes, is yeah. because she was just like him. Yeah, it's definitely part of it, and and but I, you know, I I like having a little bit of that that mystery. Yeah. You. I, I, you know, I don't really think this show is about the mystery as much as it is about, um, just the 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 events. But it it doesn't have to be like a huge mystery like they they construct on uh, CW superhero dramas. It could just you know have something that makes you want to think and come back to the show instead of just having it out there for you. Right. That that's all. I can see where you're coming from. But yeah, overall, it's an excellent show. Love to see it continue and can't wait for season three on Netflix um, because I tried to look it up on AMC streaming and yeah, they're like already on episode four or six or something like that. And yeah, it's been going on since April or something. Yeah, you can't, you can't go back to the first at the season premiere. And that's all with the time we have for this week. Uh, next week, we should be back in the books, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, talking the Almanac of Dust by Pharaoh Rose Smith. And until then, keep 30 luck points. Yeah. That's right. <laughs>